Hello and welcome to our first ever episode of God in Film, the podcast where we dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm freelance filmmaker and education writer Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and videographer Phil Coleman. During this period of uh, self-isolation, we'll be trying to stave off the boredom by sticking our film geek hats on to analyse the faith parallels in Peter Jackson's film adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, as suggested by my good friends Sarah Smith, Sean Sankey and Margaret Yule. Thanks for that one, guys. Phil, can you remember how old you were when you first saw Fellowship of the Ring? Right, well, that was back in 2001. And I'm mm-hmm. 28. That's the ripe age of 10, Giles. <laughs> okay. So, uh, see, yeah, mm, <laughs> I was pretty yeah, young. Yeah, yeah. I remember going yeah. to see it with my dad, though. Yeah, see, it's times like this where I'm reminded of the startling age gap between us. I was, <laughs> uh, I was already at university when I saw Fellowship. And each film had a tendency to come out around Christmas of every year I was at uni. Return of the King tends to be my favourite, as it's the only one where I read the book before seeing the film. I've never read the book, sorry. Uh, so yeah. my dad bought me the, the movie tie-in version, where it's got the oh, logo no. from uh, Fellowship oh, no. of the Ring on it. Right, okay. Still haven't read them. <laughs> okay. My grandma bought me the massive Club of Man to Death with version, and it, Ooh, was, just, nice. it was just too intimidating. My, uh, my friend Angie sort of gave me the individual editions and I got through it that way. Just before we get into it, I just wanted to explain how we're approaching this particular project. As a Christian, and someone whose life has been dedicated to telling, receiving and analysing stories, I tend to think that a good narrative can echo throughout history, whether you believe in it or not. And you can see these echoes in great works of art and I tend to think it's more fun if they're unintentional. So we're going to focus on films that aren't explicitly Christian and we're going to aim for ones that are as well known as possible. Just just to be clear, I'm a Christian. Phil, you are... I am an atheist. <laughs> Without further ado, what do you want to tell us about Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings, okay. as we all yep. know, is a film series of three epic fantasy adventure films directed by Peter Jackson, based on a novel written by J.R.R. Tolkien. It was produced and distributed by New Line Cinema with the co-production of Wingnut Films. The films feature an ensemble cast, including Elijah Wood... Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler and Viggo Mortensen, just to name just a couple of them. There are quite a few in there. It's set in the fictional world of Middle-earth. The films follow the Hobbit Proto Baggins as he and the Fellowship of the Ring embark on a quest to destroy the One Ring to ensure the destruction of its maker, the Dark Lord, Sauron. The three films were shot simultaneously and entirely in Jackson's native New Zealand from the 11th of October 1999 until the 22nd of December 2000, with pickup shots done 2001 to 2004. It was one of the biggest and most ambitious film projects ever undertaken, with a budget of $281 million. An extended edition of each film was released on home video a year after its theatrical release. It was a major financial success and is among the highest grossing film series of all time, with $3 billion in worldwide receipts. Each film was critically acclaimed and heavily awarded, the series winning 17 out of its 30 Academy Award nominations. Now... That's not bad going. Yes, you're not wrong. And Fellowship kind of got ignored for a lot of stuff. Um, Two Towers got ignored. I have still not forgiven Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind for winning the Oscar over Fellowship of the Ring. Because A Beautiful Mind is fine, but the sword fights in it are rubbish. So I don't know why you look (laughs) at Lord of the Rings and go, no, let's go this way instead, you know? God bless the Academy Award voters. That's one where they got it wrong. And I think somewhere along the line, I think they must have realised that if we don't kind of sort this out, they're just going to mutiny, you know? So they turned up for Return of the King, where they just won 
everything. You know, they won awards for things they weren't even nominated for. You know, they, Peter Jackson they... picked up Best Female Artist and uh, <laughs> and New Album. You know, it was that kind of day. I thought I'd compile a few facts about the production as well. The two most renowned Tolkien artists are Alan Lee and John Howe. And so it was important to Peter Jackson to have those two on board. Lee was tracked down to a tiny little village in Dartmoor and was FedEx a package of Jackson's Heavenly Creatures from 1994 and a letter outlining his intentions. They monitored the progress of the FedEx package every step of the way, but were somewhat surprised when Lee rang them only three hours after delivery to say that he'd love to work for them. How, meanwhile, was living in Switzerland. And because someone hadn't really worked out the time differences between Switzerland and New Zealand correctly, he was called at about 2am by Jackson. <laughs> he says that his biggest frustration with that phone call was waiting for Jackson to finish his pitch so he could just say yes. <laughs> Which I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The filming of the trilogy pumped about $200 million into the New Zealand economy. The New Zealand government even created a Minister for Lord of the Rings, whose remit was to exploit all the economic opportunities that the movies represented. I remember being on a plane at one point and actually seeing like Lord of the Rings characters popping up on planes on, on in-flight videos, being like, stay safe. Can you imagine if that is your job title? Your job title is Minister. Minister of Lord of the Rings. Surely it would be Minister of the Rings. That would just be the most straightforward way. The, the Minister of the Rings. It's succinct. <laughs> it says exactly what it says on the tin. You know, you, you know what you're at. Which well is done, awful. by the way. You you managed to come up with a fact that I was not aware of. So you're doing really well so far. Yes, this is part of a, a series of a couple of facts that I like to call Sean Bean being well good. So Sean Bean <laughs> swears that he was yeah. not actually in New Zealand on the day they shot the scene where the Fellowship departs for Rivendell and that he must have been digitally added to the shot. Now, the reason I like this so much is because I can just imagine Sean Bean watching the film and just being like, I don't bloody remember being there. Nah, can't possibly. He must have put me in digitally. Yeah, that's right. Sucks his pint. You know, that, that kind of thing. That's what yeah. I imagine. Right, anyway, uh, the total crew amounted to over 3,000 people of which yeah. approximately 300 were the art department alone. So 10% of them were dedicated to just making it look like Middle Earth. You know, the Weta Workshop, who's designed all this stuff, normally for um, background artists or extras, when you need to show chain mail, yeah. you just kind of put people in, in sort of like a grey, woolly top, you know, and they're, they're like 15th from the left, 9th at the back. <laughs> These guys made their own chain mail at an industrial level for everybody. It was mental the it, amount it, of work. They, they, they were basically it, like yeah. the world's biggest blacksmithing company yeah. for the long, well, for the duration of the shoot. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up in Sean Bean being well good, we've got the dummy of Sean Bean's body seen at the end, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, was so convincing that a crew member, whilst taking lunch orders, asked the other cast members if his body double wanted anything. Now, this was made out of, like, polystyrene, <laughs> but it was so convincing that he was like, does, does he have meat on his sandwiches or what? Like, yeah. <laughs> In order to make actors playing hobbits and dwarfs look noticeably smaller than humans, wizards, and elves, three techniques were used. The easiest way was to simply put some actors farther away from the camera than others using false perspective. Mm. In other situations, a small actor was used as a scale double with the face of the real actor digitally superimposed over the double's face. Finally... And this ties in with another fact that I have. 
For several shots, actors were filmed separately against the green screen and were digitally composited together into the same shot with the desired height, which explains why Sean Bean swears blind he was not in New Zealand when they did the Council of Elrond thing, because that was exactly how they did that shot. So it's it's entirely possible that Sean Bean was not there. there. Peter Jackson's director cameo. He cameos as the belching peasant outside the Prancing Pony Inn. The Prancing Pony, yes. I don't know why, my brain could only think about Peter Jackson's cameo in Hot Fuzz where he stabs Simon Pegg through the hand whilst dressed, oh, as, dressed Santa. as Santa. You know, yeah, that's, I that's the one that came to mind. Those facts were absolutely awesome. Do you want to hear okay, about no our, um, our guest? There is nothing I want to hear about more right now. I managed to interview an actual Urukai. I managed to interview an actual oh. elf, an actual soldier from the Army of the Dead. I managed to interview my friend Robbie Titchener, who lives over in Wellington in New Zealand, who was an extra in all of the Lord of the Rings films. How did you pull that one out of the bag? <laughs> to be honest, I just messaged him on Facebook and said, um, are you bored about talking about Lord of the Rings yet? He's like, no, no, I'm good. It's like, okay, awesome. Full disclosure, we had some problems hooking up the audio, so his sound might come across a bit tinny, but I think you should be able to hear it okay. We'll have a listen to that now. Kia ora, my name is Robbie. I live in New Zealand, in Wellington, New Zealand, which was the home of Lord of the Rings. The vast majority of filming was done here. Uh, in the movies themselves, I was a, an orc, an Urukai, an Easterling, an elf, a Rohan soldier, Gondorian soldier, and an army of the dead. So all sorts of characters. These days, I work as a tour guide, showing people around Wellington, but also doing tours of Lord of the Rings locations, telling stories from my perspective as an extra. Hello, Robbie. Welcome to the first ever show of our podcast. I feel like we might be sort of going a bit high because I don't think any other film we're going to look at is going to have people who are actually in the film. So you're special in all many different kinds of ways on this one. Kia ora, Giles. Thank you very much. You know how to make a guy feel special. (laughs) Okay, I've got a few questions. So... How did you get involved with Lord of the Rings? Originally, they just had a, an ad in the paper for people of certain heights, certain builds. They didn't say what it was for, but you know, it was a fairly open secret. So me being a student at the time, turned up, waited in line for three quarters of an hour, had my photo taken, don't call us, we'll call you. And eventually, they rang me. Brilliant. What was the certain height and certain build, just out of curiosity? Uh, so basically, tall people was about five foot ten, five foot eleven, and over, and short people, uh, uh, I think about five foot four and under. So basically, people tall and elvish, people short and hobbity. So I'm not tall enough to be an elf. I'm not short enough to be a hobbit. That truly sucks. Okay, <laughs> okay. And there's lots of people like that. <laughs> yeah. Had you read the books beforehand? No. But I had a, a flatmate at the time who's exactly the same as you. Not tall enough to be an elf, not short enough to be a, a, a hobbit or a dwarf. And he had read the book every year for 20 years, so big fan. And he made me promise to read the book at least once, so I've read the book once. I've read the book once as well. My friend Christina basically told me, read the books. If you are struggling, just skip the poetry and just get straight to the plot. What was the mood like amongst the extras? I mean, did people feel optimistic about the project? As extras, there's a lot of sitting around or a lot of doing the same action over and over again, so it can be very tedious days. Mm-hmm. I worked on the movie over a period of four years. It was definitely an experience, something to be enjoyed. Mm. The 
despite the, the long hours, despite the sitting around doing nothing. There was an expectation from everybody. The movie was going to be big, just no one realised just how big it was going to become. Certainly after the first movie came out and a lot of the, the new extras coming on board afterwards, there was a lot more buzz about it because people had seen the finished product. Yeah. Or the first movie or the second movie, as the case may be. And they, they saw the buzz, they caught buzz. Incredible experience. Awesome source. So as an extra, you're not supposed to, to bug the, the stars for autographs. Mm-hmm. But if you've been there for four years, you sort of get to know their, know their faces of not their names. Well, they get to know you, rather. And so I went up to Bernard Hill one day in theatre, and after lunch, he was out of costume. I knew he was finished for the day. And I got him to sign a paper serviette, a napkin. Can you sign this for me? And he said, no, 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 no. We can do much better than that. So he got me a limited edition conceptual art portfolio and then took me around all the other actors on set that day and got them to sign it for me as well. That is absolutely brilliant. A unique souvenir. So did he become your favourite cast member then? I don't know about favourite, it's certainly way up there. Yeah. But like I say, being on set for four years, you get to hang around with them. And they, they're there for, in New Zealand for four years as well. Uh, Sean Aston, his daughter was going to school in Wellington. All the other actors bought or rented here long term. They were spending the time on set. They were coming in on their days off and just hanging out. It was a great opportunity. I don't think there's many other films like that. No. That same sort of atmosphere. That's awesome. So do you have a, a particular anecdote you like to use for your, your tour groups? I have three stories that I tell people to get, demonstrate how hard it is to be an extra. Mm-hmm. The first story is there was a drinking party after the Battle of Helmstead. We pretty much we spent all day pretending to be drunk. And that is really, really hard work. It is really, really tiring. <laughs> it is draining physically and mentally because you're over-exaggerating everything all day. Tires you out. The second example is an extended version of Two Towers right at the beginning. They're looking for Theoden's son's body in the river. We spent all day lying in that river in the middle of winter while it was raining. But real rain's not big enough or predictable enough, so instead you have a rain tower as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're lying there, you're shivering like anything. Yeah. Even though you've got hot water bottles stuffed in everywhere they can go. And then when yeah. they call action, you have to lie as dead and as still as possible. The rain has to be cold, so you can't have the steam coming off it and everything like that, yeah? Exactly. Yeah. Like I say, so they had to make sure it rained on cue. Yeah, 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 yeah. The third really difficult day, I spent all day with Miranda Otto, who plays Erwin in the movies. I spent all day with her lying on top of me. <laughs> day yeah like you say that but i i don't know (laughs) i don't know i just i'm not sure if i believe you you know that is well i was dead so i was dead so i didn't really enjoy it that's fantastic 20 years later i'm still having nightmares (laughs) would you have done anything differently i don't think you would have would you just being more available i think taking more opportunities beyond set and that's a small thing but you know it's a big thing as well if that makes sense yeah it's you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's that sort of thing of when you're doing something a lot, it's that, oh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but there's also the, I'm really tired and I want to go home. Is that right? You do get tired, but also at the time, I was firstly a student, hmm? but also a youth worker. Both of them were good responsibilities, and they were right for the time, but looking back, yes, I would like to have done more more work on the film. Mm-hmm. And our final question, do you think there's any ways that you can apply faith to this particular story? Okay. Gandalf, obviously, with his 
death and resurrection. Yeah. And Samwise does his, his love um, and sacrifice and wanting to take the burden on himself. So those are probably the two biggest and easiest comparisons. That's really interesting. Samwise wasn't the, wasn't the one I was focusing on, so I'm really glad you mentioned that. Listen, Robbie, thank you so much. That's been really informative, really interesting. If this podcast catches on, we will no doubt bring you back for another famous film that you were in. <laughs> Okay. okay excellent all right thanks bye. bye yeah so that was robbie what a fascinating man him saying about miranda otto i mean having to have miranda otto on top of him for an extended period of time i can't be that there bad are, there are there are worse gigs to have Absolutely. anyway anyway let's move on to the section that i'm calling the finding the faith in the film which Ooh. I, yeah we need it we need a much cooler little jingle bit for that yeah yeah anyway i'm sure i can dig something so let's dig into this film and, and see what we can see okay mm-hmm. so for the purpose of this podcast we're treating the trilogy as one big story rather than analyzing each film individually mm-hmm. now part of the reason we're starting off with tolkien's uh, story is his feelings about allegory i don't know if you know but allegory it's a literary device of having one thing standing in for another thing and yeah. tolkien absolutely hated it as did he tolkien didn't didn't like it at all and i imagine it was a source of some disagreement with his old friend c.s lewis who if you've read the chronicles of narnia is all about that allegory life he cannot get enough about it just loves now, a good allegory that life. he loves loves a good allegory now what i find interesting is what tolkien was interested in was applicability there's this really good quote where he says, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its various applicability to the thought and experiences of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. I think that is a brilliant quote because he's essentially saying, if you want to read something into it, you go for it. You know, I think that's fantastic. It's it's nice that he empowers the reader in that kind of way to to make their own choice. If you want to make a connection, possibly a religious connection, then fine. Mm -hmm. That is that is your prerogative. But if there's another idea you've got, you do it. It's your life. It's your mind. It's a big it's a big thing of uh, death of the author, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but we'll get to that some other time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you imagine Lord of the Rings is ostensibly a follow up to The Hobbit, you're you're the publisher. You're waiting for the eager sequel to to The Hobbit and boom, that lands on your desk. You're like, oh, okay, All right. JR, let's see how we go. So, uh, Lord of the Rings is published in 1954, and it's centred around a ring which serves as a a weapon of mass destructive power. What do you think many people were desperate to compare the ring to in 1954? I'm guessing the recently the recent atomic bomb threat yeah. of yeah, Hiroshima absolutely. Nagasaki from what i can think of that would be the nearest example in real life that was that, and that's it that's the that's what it's often compared with you know knowing how tolkien feels about applicability i don't think he's going to have a problem with, with me comparing the ring to sin okay and i just want to clarify the term sin because these days mm-hmm. it's got many different connotations many of them associated with weight watchers so <laughs> yeah no yeah basically (laughs) it's this you remember that one time when you had that choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing and you did the wrong thing yeah yeah, vividly 
that's that's it. No matter what people want to discuss or the rest of it, we still got an idea of doing right or wrong, and we all know that we've done wrong at some point. That's all that is. Now I can imagine every basic youth pastor back in two thousand and three was probably drawing the comparison between the way sin transforms and destroys people to how the ring transforms Smeagol into Gollum and ultimately destroys him. Yeah. So he, he allows himself to succumb to temptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which is a pretty got, biblical then, thing. Yeah, exactly. You know. So then Frodo's taking on the job to destroy the ring has basic parallels with Jesus taking on the job of saving mankind from sin. Now, mm-hmm. do you remember in the, I think it's the Council of Elrond, there's that moment where they all start arguing and Frodo volunteers to take the ring back. And you can sort of just see on Gandalf's face, there's this moment where he kind of realises the, the enormity of the task and you can see all the sadness and compassion all in one go. Now, I have absolutely no theological basis for what I'm about to say next, but okay, this is Giles' Christian headcanon. But I imagine you've got the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They've seen what a mess mankind have got themselves into. Mm-hmm. And while they're still talking, Jesus goes, I'll do it, I'll sort it, it's, fit. It's, it's me. And then I imagine God the Father's face looks a hell of a lot like Ian McKellen's face and his yeah. facial expression. Yeah, in that in that one moment, you know, it's just now, like, oh no, <laughs> yeah, oh what have oh. you done? And it's that it's that moment when somebody says they're going to do something, and you know there's no other option. Yeah, but you wish there was. You know, it's you, it's you... the only option available, the only one that yeah. makes sense. It's not the most fun, but yeah. it's got to be done. Yeah. So when I first talked about what, what films did people think about when it came to God in film, yeah. Lord of the Rings came up a lot. And I was like, all right, I asked people, okay, show you working out. And they'd all talk about Gandalf and you know, yeah. Gandalf being resurrected. Now, to me, Gandalf is like the low-hanging fruit of comparisons. <laughs> oh, see, he dies to save his friends and he fights this evil sort of devilish monster with horns. And then he comes back. And he's wearing white, so and, yeah, Jesus, I mean, isn't like, it? You know, because people who do a god wear white, especially yeah, when they're yeah, in church. Yeah. You know, like I see, I see the comparisons visually. Yeah, and that's really all it is. It's the it's the iconography that they've borrowed fairly fairly heavily. You know, like mm-hmm. Gandalf looks how many people would have thought God looks: big white beard, time, white you know? robes. And I saw this phenomenal quote on Reddit where it says. Superficial comparisons can be made between Gandalf and Jesus, but in the end, Gandalf is not Jesus. Gandalf is Gandalf, and that is all. This is starkly contrasted by Narnia, in which Aslan truly is Jesus Christ. He's written with the direct intention of being a literary personification of Jesus and all of his facets. So there you have it. You see the you see the difference between an allegory and an applicability. You know, yeah. you can. One it is this thing, and you can't really you can't really argue around that. You know, it's it, it's sort of like like with an allegory. Hmm. It's like you've taken the script of say the story of yeah. Jesus, and all you've done is just changed all the names of the characters, yeah. the setting, the costumes, maybe something yeah. like that. But the basic thing is still there. Whereas yeah. applicability is just like this is very similar. It's yeah. not the same. This this but has I can comparisons draw this to out. this. You know, yeah. And the thing we're going to come across in this sort of series of looking at films is that every metaphor breaks down sooner or later. There's going to be some point where you go, 
oh yeah, but that doesn't quite work. And the point will be, yeah, obviously. Every metaphor breaks down sooner or later because it's a metaphor, you know? I tend to think of Gandalf as like Tolkien's own brand Merlin. He has all, yeah. the, all the sort of things that, that Merlin has, but he doesn't have any of the problematic connections or any of the kind of... If you imagine Merlin is like a character who rolls through history and he's like picking up different associations with him as he goes. Gandalf mm. is Tolkien's own Merlin who he can do what he wants to do with. The yeah. last thing I wanted to talk about... Uh, I've got a quick question for you. Yeah. What do you think are the only man-made things in heaven? That's a question that I've never been asked before, and I'm not entirely sure how to answer I figured there was a very good chance of that. By the way, it's not Jamaican ginger cake, because God has clearly made Jamaican ginger cake, and I think we can all agree on that point. I mean, I would also argue it was probably something along the lines of, you know, those little gold bars that you get by McVitie's? I don't know what it is, but that caramel chocolate... My yeah. goodness, that that's that is, that's come from somewhere else. You know, that's not that's fair. That is you know that is I mean? totally fair. You know, um, do you give up? Um, no, <laughs> I don't want to give up. <laughs> um, I'm giving you a clue. I'm, I'm going. To, you're giving me a clue for the, for the listeners. I'm holding my hands up with my palms and my wrists clearly to the camera. Uh, no, it's gone. No, it's gone. okay. So when Jesus comes back and he's resurrected. Yeah, there's the whole thing with uh, with Thomas, who's like, I'm not going to believe he's back until I see him and stick my hands in the holes. Yes, I and remember that. So those are the only man-made things that'll be in heaven: is the the holes in the hands and the the hole in the side. And what I wanted to really draw a comparison to is uh, this idea that doing the right thing has a cost to it. You can win. You can be totally triumphant, totally victorious, but there'll still be uh, a cost uh, attached to it. There'll still be something that you can't like a toll. get rid of. And it's, yeah, uh, to, to an extent, you know, and it's it's something that even C.S. Lewis talks about in, um, in A Horse and His Boy. And it's most clear in Frodo here. So mm. I don't know how well you remember Fellowship, but there's one point where all the hobbits and Aragorn are all at Weathertop and yes. the ring wraiths catch up with them. The Lord of the Nazgul, he stabs Frodo. He stabs, and yeah, and he's got that sort of infection. Yeah, it's kind of a long-lasting kind of infection that's that's there. It makes him kind of weak for, for the rest of his life. And if he, if he hadn't been for the intervention of the elves and him recuperating it at Rivendell, he would have died then and there. But he's... yes. As it is, he survives throughout the narrative. This wound that he gets in trying to achieve this one thing is with him for the rest of his life until he ends up going with, I think it's the elves, I think it might be Elrond. They mm. go on their boat to the Undying Lands. Yeah. And I know we've said that Tolkien's not a big fan of allegory, but that's pretty clearly heaven, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's come li- on. Well, actually, I actually you know? looked this up before we started. Yeah. Um, okay. Apparently, the Undying Lands is not a place where you go to be immortal or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You can actually return from them. But okay. I, that's that's not explicitly said in the film. Right, Because okay. uh, I was quite fascinated I... by that. Because I know Bilbo right, okay. goes there after. A I while. think is is the idea that he's not going to return within their lifetime. I think is you know. So when they when I'm, they say yeah, goodbye to I'm his thinking friends. so. Yeah, you can go there for a very long time, but you're you're not going there to achieve immortality. Yeah, it sounds very much yeah. like heaven in the context yeah. of the film. In the context of the film, yeah. There you have it. Those are my uh, three points, and thank you very much for listening, um, Phil. I absolutely adored doing this with you. This has been so much fun. It's been uh, wonderful. 
we should do this more often. That's that's the nefarious plan. And listeners, if you'd enjoyed hanging out with us, then please like and subscribe. And if you've got anything to say, if we got anything wrong or anything like that, please leave us a review and tell us. We will do our best to, to correct it. If there's other films you think we should check out, please let us know. And have a lovely evening. Have a great Bye. evening. We'll talk to you next time. Guardian Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact-checking by Christina Stanard-Good. Dialogue editing by Natalie Austin. Guardian Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review the show, unless it's one star, in which case just tell Phil directly by shouting at him in the street.